What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hi, welcome to the first edition of the NASCAR on NBC podcast for the 2023 NASCAR Cup Series season. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, joined today by NASCAR and NBC analyst and Daytona 500 winning crew chief, Steve Letarte. Steve, we just wrapped up the biggest race of the year, the Daytona 500 last night. Ricky Stenhouse Jr., the winner, gets JTG Doherty, its second cup victory ever. A lot to unpack there about the winner, a lot to break down about the race. I want to get to all that, but I want to start with, you were there pretty much from Wednesday on last week. You saw the duels. You saw how things transpired up until the race itself. What were your general takeaways about Speed Week 2023, and what did you think we learned about super speedway racing this week for 2023? Well, Nate, thanks for having me. Episode one, that's bragging rights over all of my fellow analysts. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and use those as I stumble in the fantasy lineup. But let's say this. Let's start off the track. Uh, Daytona is back. That's what I'll say. Daytona is back. I was slow to make my reservations. I wasn't sure if I was going to go. Shame on me. You couldn't get a hotel room. You couldn't get a reservation for dinner. You couldn't drive around pre-race. That's what the 500 used to feel like. And man, that's what it felt like. It felt like Thursday night. It felt like Saturday. It felt like it again on Sunday. Sunday, the buzz in Daytona was as big as I had felt it in recent years or decades. That is a great thing for the sport. And it's back because of what we're seeing on the racetrack. So let's start at the beginning of the week. I was team no practice. I read all the articles. We don't need practice. And I'm like, I agree. Why do we need practice? <laughs> okay, I was wrong. I do believe a little practice before Daytona 500 qualifying would improve the fan event. I think it would improve the fan experience for the week. I don't think the teams need it. I know there was a couple mechanical issues. Ho-hum, ho-hum. Do better. Be more prepared. But the simple fact is, it is the biggest race of the year. It's the Daytona 500. And I believe for that reason, and to start off the year, I'd like to see an hour on th on Wednesday before we qualify. I would even be okay if, so why don't we have practice? There's multiple reasons. But the first thing is, you don't want to build three or four speedway cars to go down there. And anytime you're on the track on a draft, you could wreck. How about we have an hour of practice and we just say, listen, it's single car only. You got to go out and run by yourself, run as much as you want. We don't say they have to be qualifying runs, but it's going to be single car. I'd be okay with that. I'd like to see Travis Pastrana run some more laps before we had to qualify. Zane Smith in a cup car. And I think as the Daytona 500 grows, we're going to have the opportunity for some major stars to want to enter the event. So I think an hour of practice pre-qualifying makes sense. Shame on me for thinking it didn't. Not that I had a vote, but I will defend the ones that voted against it because I was also team no practice. I want to ask you about the Thursday race. I think we saw a different race because of the no practice. And I think that led to some concern that we might see a more conservative race Sunday. And we didn't. But that's sort of what you're getting at, right, Steve? Is that you, you have early practice 
maybe you get a racier duels, you get a racier week, even if you have the and, risk of wrecks. And I'm not even sure about a racier duel. What I want is 50 cars entered for the Daytona 500. Yeah. So in this ability to, quote, purchase most of the vehicle, sign an engine plan. So let's bring the fan back. If you want to go to Daytona five years ago and have a legitimate shot, you had to call Hendrick Gibbs, RFK, RCR, a missing of some, but one of the bigger teams try to buy a car, rent a car. You weren't going to build a car to compete without the knowledge. Well, now I believe you can assemble a car to compete. Now, do I feel it will be as fast? Maybe not. There's definitely some information. I'm not here saying they're all the same. What I'm saying is you could part a car on the racetrack without a year-long commitment. That should be spectacular. We saw 2311 bring a third car with Travis Pastrana. Well, I want it. We're all the teams that don't have four. So go down the list. What do we got? We got Track House, 2311, uh, Rick Ware Racing brought an extra, thankful for them. Live Fast only brought one. They could have brought many. Legacy brought an extra. Spire could have brought, you know, take all those teams. Penske could have brought an extra. Like, take all these teams that could bring extra cars. I want them to go sign the biggest names in motorsport, like we see at the Rolex, and bring them to the Daytona 500. For that, you got to get them on track a little bit. You're not going to go to an Elio Castroneves and be like, hey, man, your first lap's going to be qualifying. Right. While I think he can do it, that's not the question. I think it's unfair. Like, let him at least get through the gears and get up on the high banks. And, you know, he doesn't need two days of testing. The man can drive a race car. But just an hour. Knock the rust off and be like, okay, man, this is where my shifter is. And this is how the pedals work. And this is how fast the steering is. Like, let the guy get a little acclimated. That's really why I'm team practice. I don't think it carries over to Thursday, quite honest. I think that's analytics. I think that has nothing to do with practice. I heard more teams on the radio say, let's save this race car. It drove me nuts. I think the duels are looked at completely wrong from the garage area. It's the only on-track mulligan of the year. The only one. You reckon the duels, it does cost you a race car. That's it. So I'm going to pick on the 21 of the Wood Brothers because I was scanning them. So I could say single-handedly what I heard on that radio. There was a concerted effort to, hey, let's just not tear this car up. I understand that on the analytical side. I totally get it. I'm not saying I wouldn't even do the same thing, perhaps, if I only could see the race through their lens. But as I'm a little bit broader lensed as a TV person, I stood on top of the Victory Lane building and watched that first duel. And I'm thinking to myself, this is when else is the 22-year-old Harrison Burton going to get a dress rehearsal? When else is he going to zig when he should have zagged, catch a bumper, and smash it into the outside fence and destroy a race car and go, well, did you learn what you need? Because in three more days, we're going to ask you to win the biggest race of the year. And, and I think we underestimate how much experience Jeff Gordon, Dale Jr., Tony Stewart, Joey Logano, Brad Kozlowski, we, all of those guys, and, and I know some are retired, but as they built their careers, so many duels, so much practice, the amount of laps that these guys had to learn how to draft is exponential to our current younger stars. Now, listen, if I was Joey Logano's crew chief, would I tell him to race? I'd be like, hey, buddy, um, if you don't think you need to race, I'd really prefer you not, right? Take it nice yeah. and easy because I don't think you need – but if Joey Logano looked at me and said, no, nah, man, I only got a few – you know, I don't really know how this car is going to race. I need to go. I'd be like, well, okay, guys, get the other one prepped because this one might not come home, but we have to give our driver a chance. That's my duels. That's my gripe of the week. My gripe of the week has nothing to do with NASCAR. It has nothing to do with the fans. My gripe of the week is in the garage area. The duels should be spectacular because it's the only mulligan out there. Let's do it. Let's let these guys race. Thankfully, we didn't see as much of that analytics type approach to Sunday's race. You and I were talking earlier. We saw a Daytona 500 that we've come to see. We saw a lot of guys going for broke. We saw a lot of crashes, not a lot of concern about if you were bringing anything more home than the steering wheel. I know you love watching the Daytona 500, Stevie, because it is this three, three and a half hour chess match where everything matters. Every move matters. Every strategy matters. 
and I know you love turning points. So take us through what led up to Ricky Stenhouse Jr. winning this race, the turning points, the caution flags, the pit sequences that you saw that made this race so critical. So I'm going to get my notes out because if not, I'm going to get the lap count wrong. But I think really the key for me is, and you mentioned it, so the Daytona 500 is really a chess match. And when no one wins the race, they're just slowly eliminated. And they could be eliminated by mistakes. They could be eliminated by just misfortune. There's a lot of different ways you can lose this race. And in my mind, the race was there. And the first green flag pit cycle proved to me that we were watching the type of race I love. And what I mean by that is if you look at the field pre-cycle and post-cycle, it's very jumbled up. And I am not a believer that's a, huh, too bad. We suck. No, not too bad. Everyone did the same thing. Everyone pitted, serviced their car, went back on the racetrack. Like, and that's to go back to the duels. While the first race probably wasn't as racy as some want, I thought that was an excellent duel. I was thoroughly entertained by the strategic play of when to pit, not to pit. My gripe was more with, I wish we should have let the drivers do what they do. The second duel was kind of that way. Maybe they learned from the first. Fast forward to Sunday to your original question. You know, when I look down at my notes right here, right, we saw a lot going on that first pit cycle in the lap 30-ish, whatever it was, 35 to 40 range. It, it instantly showed you that how you get on pit road with how many cars, how much fuel you put. I think we are totally underestimating that the fuel load is, is a huge part of this entire race now. It's very Indy 500-esque. You could put tires on faster than you can fill. You put two tires on, you wait on fuel, and it's like, I see a lot of nervous crew chiefs trying to get to the end of stage one. And I'm like, oh, this is an interesting fact because they pitted. So you think they should be good, but they don't want to spend a lot of time there. In my mind, the first big change was all week long, I was beating the drum of Denny Hamlin, Ryan Blaney, Chase Elliott. The numbers said they should have been there. The buzz in the garage said they were going to be there. And then in the blink of an eye, poof, two of them are eliminated basically in the same rack. Ryan and Blaney and Chase Elliott with damage right away. And that was the first one that I think changed the complexion of the race for me. That was what? Around lab 118, right? So it starts with the four getting into Tyler Reddick. You know, it's pushing. There was no harm, no foul, but but definitely a wreck was caused. And it kind of just started stacking up cars and started taking out a few of the players. And that's what changed it. And then we continued on and continued on. But what I really think is exciting is the last, say, 20 laps of that race, different groups kept cycling themselves to the front. RFK was in control. And then on the racetrack, Great move by RCR with the 47's help to then take control of the race and then do it in a manner where they kind of had it in tow. I don't know what we were going to get for the final five miles if it would have gone green, but it was going to be very interesting to see if Austin Dillon loves his new teammate or if Austin Dillon wanted to win a Daytona 500 <laughs> and where would Joey Logano go and what would Ricky Stenhouse do? Like the layers were growing. Yeah. And then we had the spin with Suarez, which set up the – and I won't lie – I think I would have enjoyed the, the race running green to the end more than – I know those restarts are exciting, but they kind of turn into a chess match, but some guy's wearing a boxing glove. And I think if it would have ran green, that anticipation builds in my stomach. Right As I'm watching this race, I'm like, well, there's five to go. There's four to go. It, it's kind of like you're like watching the Weather Channel on the coast of Florida, and they tell you this hurricane's coming, and every day they update the potential path. And that's what I was watching, right? This hurricane of action is coming. And where is it going to land? Is it going to be the white flag into one, two to go? Who's going to do it? And we got robbed a little bit of that because of the caution. And then we have a choose rule. And then the RCR guys decide to play the old game of letting the guy in on top. I'm not saying it was a bad decision. But can I say Rick Allen and I were texting on a group text? And I'm thankful 
They play this game. We don't go. The eight pulls down. And the drop, the top drives right around them. And I was kind of like, hey, the choose rule is here this year. A-plus a choice by NASCAR bringing it. I thought it affected a lot of what the outcome was. That was it. I mean, that was the loss of control for RCR, right? They had control. And in my opinion, it was executed well by the drivers. I think whoever in leadership thought that that was the better strategy, it's always easier after it happens. Obviously, it wasn't because the top lane, they didn't do anything special. So much so, let's go back to the last restart of the race. So much so, Ricky Stenhouse started up top and just said, my man Joey Logano is the best pusher in NASCAR. I'm just going to let him hook to my bumper, and off we go. Um, yeah. And there we did it. And that was all fine. But then you always come. I'll say this. I'll say it again. The final five miles of the Daytona 500 is amazing. Every year, there's a new move that, that amazes. You and I have dissected the Denny Hamlin no block on the back stretch to come back to win on the front stretch. We have dissected the, yeah, the Truex Jr., Matt Kenseth finish. Kenseth goes for the big block, the drag race to the line. That was maybe 16. 16. Hamlin um, was the race, closest finish ever. Yeah, so there's all these things. Well, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., I encourage the fan, go back and watch this. He takes the lead on the restart with a big shove from Joey Logano. They're coming around for the white, and Clint Boyer says it. Now that energy's all broke up now. Now Stenhouse we're going to see the out. coming from behind. Where's he going to go? They're both going to get to him pretty hard, pretty quick. He's too far out. What lane's he going to block? And that was the look for me. And in hindsight, it's easier to go back and understand what he was thinking. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. waits to the absolute possible minute to block the bottom. Why do I think that matters? I think he forces Kyle Larson, who's going so fast at this point, to either shove Ricky Stenhouse way back out there again, wreck him, or go three wide. Kyle goes three wide. The pinballing starts. Stenhouse, the reason I say blocking the bottom mattered is I believe, and I can't wait to ask Ricky myself, I believe he's done enough speedway racing that he knows the yellow line is clogged. He knows when he goes left, the, Kyle Larson can't go left. That's below the W yellow line. His only option's right. Well, when he goes right, that's going to leave a gap. If he doesn't go right, he gets a big push. If he does go right, there is a fear that the guy behind Larson will go with him. I thought that could have happened. But eventually, someone on the yellow line, there's a lifeboat coming. The yellow line is going to have cars in it. And it was very fortunate for him that that help did come in time. Like Joey Logano could easily won this race. The top could have led off turn two when the wreck happened. Uh, but in the end, it was Ricky Stenhouse's move. But I, it, was in, it was interesting. I do want to say this, make sure this is crystal clear on here. Because my wife asked me a lot of questions. <laughs> At the moment of yellow, when the button is pushed, the lights illuminate. That's simultaneous. That is when the field is frozen. There's no lines. There's no loop lines. The only then question mark, there's two questions to answer. Now that we've established this time and space, this is the, this is the moment of the caution per this timestamp. Then all we do is decide two simple things, Nate. First, were you or were you not involved in the accident? Because if you were, there are different rules for you. If you were not, where were you in the running order? That's it. There's a lot of other conversations, and this one, thankfully, in the biggest race of the year, wasn't even close. It was Ricky Stenhouse by over a half a car. Congratulations, Ricky Stenhouse. Listen, it was it was amazing. I thought we saw Ricky Stenhouse. I handicapped it all week long, and I had Stenhouse not finishing. I've seen him being over-aggressive at the speedway races. Ever since he had that big success back in the late teens, I thought he had tried too hard and tried too hard and tried too hard. And the Ricky Stenhouse I saw today, now listen, don't get me wrong, when it's time to get the elbows up and the boxing gloves on, he'll box with the best of them. But I thought a little bit of discretion over 400 miles that I hadn't seen out of Ricky Stenhouse Jr. And congratulations. I don't think there's a more liked guy in the garage area. 
He kind of does things his own way. He's not afraid to disagree, but he doesn't pick fights for no reason. I couldn't be happier. One of the nicest guys, JTG, a longtime supporter, took that very tough challenge from two cars to one. Could have very easily just said, you know what, sell the other charter. Let's get out of the business, make a little money. Uh, Tad and, and Jody Geschechter didn't do that. Our good friend and colleague, Brad Doherty, super involved over there as well. And bravo for the little engine that could to stay with it, continue to build, to continue to commit, and to win the biggest race of the year. Yeah, and uh, a lot to break down there, Stevie. I want to get back to all of that eventually because there's there's a lot about the winner and the winning team that I think is very interesting that, that you touched on. want to get to that, but first, want to go back to the winning move by Stenhouse. As you said, he puts Kyle Larson in a really interesting position here. And Kyle Larson talked after the race, after he was out of the care center, took a big hit. Thankfully, it was okay. He talks to Dustin Long and some other reporters after the race. And Kyle Larson, I think, seemed to be showing some regret here. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm okay. It was definitely a, a huge hit. So uh, my first time wearing that mouthpiece. So I'm um, curious to see what that reads. Uh, it was definitely one of the bigger ones I've, I've ever had. So, but thankfully, you know, car held up, I guess, and, and all my safety equipment was fine and, and I'm, I'm fine. So uh, just a bummer, you know, felt like we had a, you know, I mean, everybody in the top four to six has an opportunity to win there and just, um, I had such a run from the 20. I didn't know what to do with it. I felt like where I was going to hit the or get to the 47, I wanted to stay committed to him. Um, you know, at least through one and two and down the back stretch and then have things work out. I, d I definitely didn't want to try and go for the lead um, as early as I did. I just had such a run. I didn't know what to do with it. And I thought if I got to him where I was going to get to him, it was just going to choke us up or cause a crash and, and then we weren't going to win. So. Um, wish I could play that over again, but uh, happy that Ricky won. I'm, I'm super, I mean, that's all I could think about after I crashed, was just waiting to get out and hear that, that he won. So, um, yeah, super happy for him and his team, Chevrolet and, and everybody, but uh, wish I could have you know, at least finished. When you listen to his words, I think he's wondering, hey, I had this big run for Christopher Bell. I didn't quite know what to do with it. I didn't know, you know, whether to stay in line behind Stenhouse and push him or, you know, if that causes a wreck. It seemed like he was pretty conflicted about the end of this race. I want your take on that because when we talked about this earlier, Stevie, I said I thought Larson maybe made the wrong move here and should have just, hey, just run over Stenhouse, just go for the win like anybody else would. But you think that that wouldn't necessarily have meant a win for Larson. Yeah, so first of all, the fact that Kyle Larson has regret shows you what this race means. You know, he's not going to have regret for a day. He's going to have regret for 365 days until he gets back to the Daytona 500. The other thing is, I think we had a lot of conversation a couple years ago that Kyle Larson may be one of the best to have ever. I think we could have that argument still. And the fact that it wasn't so crystal clear tells you why we think Denny Hamlin's going to be so good. Why we think Brad Keselowski is going to be so good. I want the fans to know you are not watching roulette. Like you are watching surgery. Like these guys are not, this isn't where the ball bounces. Right. Now for some, it, it's affected that way. But just because they're doing the right thing and get taken out by somebody else doesn't mean it was just completely luck for everyone. That's like a slap in the face to the ones that are great at it. This is a skill set. This is practice. And to be quite frank, Kyle Larson, self-admittedly for years, has just not loved the style of racing for multiple reasons. He's also not been in this position enough to know. But whatever happens Sunday, and only Kyle Larson knows how he's going to adapt that, but Kyle Larson heading to Talladega, heading to Atlanta, he's now more dangerous. He's now a more experienced drafter. We know he has a skill. This isn't a skill question. This is a decision-making question, right? Like, you know, what we thought was happening at Fast Forward, Kyle Larson knew exactly what was happening. 
I had a run from Bell. This is it. What do I do with it? I think his two options were this, the middle, which he chose. And if Bell goes with him, I think Kyle Larson's leading the Daytona 500. Hmm. I think his other option is to somehow try to give that push to the 47. And the real question to my mind then is the 47 loves him because he's leading off too. The question is, you know, it's kind of like a wave, right? When you push, when the wave crashes into shore, what happens? Well, it rolls back off the shore. So when that momentum of that wave of Kyle Larson crashes into the 47, he shoves him way out there. Where does the run go, right? Does the five lose that momentum? And does the whole inside lane accordion back and the top lane takes control of the race? Like, I don't know. It's impossible to know. I think either of the moves were okay. I don't think there's a right move. Because let's, let's be clear. Kyle Larson didn't wreck. The 10 hit the 67 who caught the five. Let's be clear here. Kyle Larson didn't go to the middle, start ping-ponging, lose control of his car. That is not what happened. I'm not putting blame anywhere else. I'm just saying Kyle Larson went to the middle, stable, in control, and was hoping to have some help in the middle lane. He then got caught up in a wreck. That's speedway racing. I'm not even going to pick on Travis Pastrana. I don't know. We watched. What did I just say? We watched the four push the 45. Nobody's questioned Tyler Reddick. He got spun out. So apparently whatever push the 10 gave to the 67, I don't know. The 67 couldn't control it. He got spun out. So I say all that because Kyle Larson was in the mix. All the time, and I learned this because I got to work with Jeff Gordon and Dale Jr. If you're in the picture, if you're one of those 15 cars we just talked about, eight cars we just talked about, Kyle Larson specifically we just talked about, that's all you can ask. Because if you are there time and time and time again, you will win a Daytona 500. You will get the right move, the right this, the right that. And um, Kyle Larson's going to question it. I don't think his move was completely wrong. You could go back and play it. It could happen even way. I think instead of questioning Larson's move, I want to give the credit to the victor. Mm -hmm. Congratulations, Ricky Stenhouse, because he didn't top, bottom, top, bottom. Oh, no decision three wide or no decision wrecked him down the infield. He waited, 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 left turn. And it's kind of like, you know, a little bit of a game of chicken, right? Like he waited to the last minute to pick his lane. And then it was an abrupt move to the point that gave Kyle Larson enough time still to hit him or miss him which tells me it's not a bad block, just a well-executed block. But I do want to get back to what you said. I mean, Stenhouse has a reputation, a history of running over guys at super speedway races. Everybody's seen the Twitter meme of Ricky Stenhouse Jr.'s 40-foot car, you know, monster trucking its way through speedway races. Dan McFadden, FrenchRush.com. Ricky, in the years since you got your first two wins back in 2017, there's been a lot of, like, criticism and jokes made at your expense because of your aggressive driving style in these races and accidents you may or may not have caused. On a night like this, on this stage, when everyone else is in the garage fixing torn-up cars and you're crossing the finish line, not much of a scratch on your car. Do you feel like you got the last laugh tonight? Uh, I mean, obviously you're going to have haters everywhere. Um, and when you have somebody at the time, uh, like Kyle Busch getting out and bashing you, uh, yeah, that's, that's difficult to overcome, but you know, I mean, I feel like I've put myself in some bad spots. Yeah. Throughout, throughout my career, but you know, the, the faster we get our cars, the more I can take care of them and, and still run them close to the front. You know, something I've always tried to do, which is at sometimes an expense is try and take a car and try and get way more out of it than, you know, than what's there. And so, you know, I feel like that's my job to do as a race car driver is to get, you know, the most speed out of a race car that you can. But, you know, also in this sport, you got to take care of it and can't just leave it all out there every single, every single race. You know, fair or unfair, he'd won at Talladega. 
He'd won at Daytona before. So it's not like he wasn't good at this. But as you know, Stevie, I mean, this time he was decisive and he made the right moves without causing a wreck. Also a hugely popular win. I want to get to that minute too. Like, I think you're right. Stenhouse is well liked in the garage, despite having a little bit of that history. But do you think that history, the fact that he did run over people in the past, he caused the big wrecks at Daytona at Talladega, did it factor into the reason that he became a first-time Daytona 500 runner? We are all a total of our choices. Anyone who thinks any different is ashamed of what they've done. Like, we are all sitting here today. You can't take away the days that I've walked, the years that I've lived, the decisions I've made. You can't unpeel that onion. We throw these terms around, oh, well, this guy's a very experienced driver. What does that mean? Well, that's a polite way of saying he's hit a lot of stuff. He's made a lot of mistakes, but since somebody else paid for all that, I'm going to hire him now. I mean, that's really what we're saying when, when, you know, when somebody goes, oh man, you know, RCR is getting Kyle Busch perhaps at the best of his career. Oh, so you're saying because he's already learned these lessons. Like, yes. I mean, look, I did it. I was very lucky early in my career to have a couple of pit calls go my way. And there was a stretch there that I think I was ignorant, arrogant, didn't give some people enough credit, make some pit calls. And they were so egregious. They didn't go the right way. And you're like, man, what are you doing? Why are you trying so hard? I lost a race at Las Vegas, putting two tires on Jeff Gordon. And when you go back and look at it, I'm like, we had 36 car lengths to the next car because of lap cars and blah, 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 blah. Like you flat fumbled the ball at the one. Like own it. And I think what we saw from Ricky Stenhouse Jr. is he won those races in a certain manner. So why would you not go back to that well of success? And I think he then took that style and it didn't go well for a little bit. And the memes came and the things came and this came. And he took it on the chin. I never saw him get mean about it. I never saw him point fingers. He kind of self-reflected a little bit. And for whatever reason, what I saw on Sunday, there was two or three moments in the race where discretion overcame. And, and listen, I'm going to go ahead and say it. If you look at Ricky Stenhouse's age, and if you look at the current format of any full-time team, there's no more top 30 in points. If you win a race, you're in the playoffs. Where can this team go? I don't know. One race. I'm not going to say, oh, it's a second race at JTG. Oh, yeah, their championship. Fest. Nope, 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 nope. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is any organization out there that is building or expanding, Ricky Stenhouse Jr., his name now will just continue to be tossed around as a guy that can absolutely give you a chance at at least the six drafting tracks. Perhaps this year we're going to talk way more about him. I'm not saying he couldn't give you a chance other places. But I think everyone will have him at the tip of the conversation when we go to these drafting tracks. Congratulations to Ricky, right? I think this is going to be a marquee win that, you know, as we head into the next TV contract and as charters expand and teams or charters move around is a better word and teams become more and more and more solid and looking for that person. I don't know how Ricky Stenhouse Jr., a multiple time Xfinity Series guy, like He's going to be a race car driver for a long, long time. And congratulations to him. Super, super person. Easily the biggest win of his career and a huge win for his crew chief as well. Mike Kelly, he had won two Xfinity Series championships with Mike Kelly. Mike Kelly had sort of bounced around a little bit, but had always sort of stayed in Ricky Stenhouse Jr.'s orbit. Been a part of this team, but now he's in that crew chief role again. He talked about the fact that he didn't think he was ready for the crew chief role at the cup level when he first got it. And now he's in there. He wins the Daytona 500 with Ricky Stenhouse Jr. And Stevie, I want to talk to you about Ricky Stenhouse Jr. and Mike Kelly's relationship because... This was one of these examples where I think driver crew chief symbiosis really does matter. And 
We heard. I mean, like, I'm just a little. The amount, the small words, I know what you meant, but come work with a guy here. I'm just, I'm just a racer. Hey, I know you outscored me on verbal on SAT, so I know that you know symbiosis. <laughs> you know rapport. The way these guys talk to each other, it's like yeah. you and Dale Jr. It's it's like what you and Jeff Gordon had in that 2007 season. And when Ricky Stenhouse Jr. rolled off the line before he won the Daytona 500 yesterday. He had a sticker on his roll bar that said, we believe in you. Mike Kelly had placed that there without telling his driver on Sunday morning pre-race. Mike Kelly asked Ricky Stenhouse Jr. after he won the Daytona 500 if he had seen that sticker. Look above your head. Look on that roll bar. I see it, boys. I see it. Morning when I woke up, it was at 3:30, and uh, I've been coming here for a long time. I think it's like my 27th year coming here, and but it just something this, something this morning felt different. Kind of how our week started. Uh, I kept telling myself if we if we just keep working on our car and keep believing in ourselves. So when I woke up this morning, I I told myself. And it's something I used to do for Ricky when we had tough days in the Xfinity car. I, I just wrote him a note that only he would see, and it was on top of the roll bar in front of him. And it just said, we believe. And that's kind of been our team's motto all off season, is that we believe. We're a small team. We're not, we're not a super powerhouse team. We're small. We, I think there's 40, 45 employees that work in our shop every day. Um, but I have 45 people that believe in what we're trying to accomplish. We're trying to get people to believe in Ricky Stenhouse again. We're trying to get people to believe in myself and, and the vision that we have. Man, it's, it's probably as much of the things you guys know about on the racetrack that we have done off the racetrack and the things we have gone through in our lives together, the ups and downs, the going to Tulsa and spending all our weeks together in the Chili Bowl and just talking about this sport and what this sport means to us, but also what it has done to us, the ups and downs and the places it's taken us. You know, we... We've seen a lot of highs, but we've seen a lot of lows. And I remember sitting in meetings where Ricky's career almost ended before it ever started. You all, you all know the story, right? He, he had to cut cars up at Roush uh, because he had wrecked so much stuff. And I remember sitting in meetings when they basically voted. And not one person out of that group voted to cast him to the side. But it's been as much off the track. It's been sleeping on my couch or uh, in his motorhome. Just two people... That when you say you have someone's back, you know they have your back. And when you say, I'm going to make this decision, he knows I'm making the best decision for Ricky Stenhouse, not Mike Kelly by myself. It's it's for him. And we almost wrestled one year at Bristol. I mean, literally grabbed each other, and I thought we were going to kill each other because of a mistake. But we he knew I made the best decision I had at that time. Obviously, that belief that he has in his driver, you understand that. You've been a crew chief. You know how much that matters. Stenhouse is a great driver. He's a great super speedway racer. But how much did it matter to have Mike Kelly, this guy who believes in him, back on his box? Well, so I'm going to start with Mike Kelly, and I'm going to throw the challenge back to you and our friend Dustin Long. I want you all to get him to pen an editorial for our website because I want, I want to hear it from him. I don't want to report on him. I want to hear the editorial from him, and I think he could do the world of high school and college-age kids around the world a great debt here by writing an editorial on patience of his career because I believe – I don't know this to fact. I can't – I would be shocked if he didn't have a lot of opportunities between those championships – and where he stands now. And yet he chose not to take them. And he was patient and he built and he learned. And he was patient and he learned. So I, I would love for, for you to challenge him and say, hey, you tell your story. Hmm. Let me, I mean, listen, you were kind enough uh, to write the book that you and I put out there together. So I know how well you could tell somebody else's story. But sit down. I want you to sit down with Mike. And I want to hear this story from him. Because I think we're all going to be shocked about how 
dark some of those nights can be when you're when you're second or third on a team that isn't winning races and you have the chance to go somewhere that might win win races right so i think yeah. it would do the younger uh person girl or boy coming out of college coming out of high school to being patient and kind of letting the career come to you because i am a big fan of the former crew chief at jtg i think brian patty's very very smart he has a long career he's won a lot of races he's found a lot of success so I don't think Mike Kelly, I think it's a disservice to one who left to say, oh, well, Mike Kelly's just way smarter. Mm -hmm. Listen, they're all smart. Mm -hmm. This garage area is full of smart people. What Mike Kelly did is I think we forget that these race car drivers because they put a fire suit on and they put their Superman helmet on and they, they're, they're supposed to be bigger than life characters on the racetrack. And I think sometimes, you know, that race car can be their, their sword if they're winning races, but it can be a very empty canoe if you're by yourself and you're the only guy with a paddle, right? And then when you're losing... I think it can be a little solitary out there, right? You're riding around and you're in, do you feel as a race car driver, your team is in that car with you, right? Do you think they're whispering about you on the pit box? Do you think they're on channel two talking between driver and crew chief saying what you should be doing? And I believe what Mike Kelly has done with that simple sticker and probably weeks and years of conversations, I think Ricky Stenhouse Jr. knew whatever happened in that race, he was going back to a group that supported him. And that allows him to be his best. And yeah. that could be making a mistake or winning the biggest race of the year. And I think that says a lot to your point. After the biggest race of the year, that's the conversation. It's not the move and the team and the this and the that. It's we believe in you. And I think the fans come in like, well, of course they believe in you with their team. Listen, man, athletes are fragile. They're fragile beings. Ours, we all are. So what Mike Kelly did for his driver there was, was outstanding. Now, listen, it was a fairy tale story because they won the 500. But even if they didn't, only Stenhouse knows, and he might not even know, right? It might, it might actually be just kind of a natural thing. You know, what we saw on Sunday was that his, you know, was he more patient? Was he just, like, I don't, we don't know, right? Like, I saw Dale Hart Jr. over time focus more on what I needed him to focus on. That was really the goal with Dale. I had no question of his talent. I knew he could win races. He was amazing. I just felt like he was spending a lot of energy worrying about stuff that didn't help us win. And, and I wanted to let him know that, man, you don't have to defend yourself to me. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. I just want you to do X, Y, and Z. If you prepare like I've asked X, Y, and Z, and we aren't good enough, then we need to go to work over on our side. And I want you to believe that if I think you're not good enough, I'm going to tell you what I think you need to do better. I'm not going to whisper it to Nate, the reporter off to the side. I'm just going to call you in and say, all right, Dale, I need you to do X, Y, and Z. And he can tell me, all right, well, I need you to do A, B, and C. And we got that relationship that we found success because we didn't have to have pleases and thank yous. And what is he thinking? Like, I don't have time for that. Do this, do that, <laughs> do that. We laugh about the Jimmy Johnson, Chad Knauss relationship. And it perhaps got a little bumpy at times. Yeah. But I think it's fair to say in the heyday, there was not a lot of wasted words. I mean, they were on their game. Yeah. So, so I think that's what Mike Kelly's done, right? He's taken ownership of this team and he has found his signature. I don't think it's like anyone else's. He's taken it over time. And obviously, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. reacted to that because it wasn't just what he was saying. You hear the emotion from Ricky, like, I see it. I believe in you guys. I appreciate you got like it, it was a it was a spectacular moment. And Ricky yeah. in general, like the man got married. He's kind of like friend to everybody, but yet he's still his own person. It's just he's just a very interesting person and good for him. Takes a lot of courage to kind of stand out and be on your own in the spotlight. And he's that way. I saw him that morning. Him and his buddy Beeler from Phoenix was standing at the back of the truck. A couple fans were coming up. But here's Ricky. Looks very nice. T-shirt, though. Logo. Shorts. A well-put-together uniform, but he didn't look like any other driver. He looked like Ricky Stenhouse. 
Yeah. And I'm like, you know, that's kind of pretty cool that, you know, we sat there, we shot the breeze. He, he kind of gave me his synopsis of what he thought Sunday was going to look like. And off we went. It was, it was fun. It was a good day. Obviously a great day for him and sort of affirms maybe Stevie, like the choices he's made in his career, his life. Like you said, he gets married in the off season, already a big year for him, but you said it. And he's, he's well liked by his peers, but I wouldn't characterize him as necessarily being like a follower or being, he's got his own piece of land way out in the middle of nowhere, Charlotte area where he lives. He kind of does his own thing. He's the dirt racer. He kind of marches to his own beat, but yet he is in everybody's circle. How would you describe kind of like the essence of Ricky? Because you know him, you've golfed with him. Well, so so if you look at Ricky Stenhouse's social media, his commitment to fitness and racing is, I mean, the man ran, what did he run? I can't remember what it was, but like two marathons over 48 hours earlier this year with a bunch of other, some of my buddies to raise some money for charity. Like he's just always doing these things. You see Harrison Burton and Todd Gilliland working with him all the time. They drive for Ford, he drives for Chevrolet, but they're friends. And I think they have a lot of the same connection through some of the agencies they work with. So he's mentoring these younger men, showing them how to do different things and how to prepare, how to perhaps avoid the distractions and focus on the racetrack. He's proudly from Mississippi. He is very proud in who he is and what he's become, yet he's not so close-minded to not understand the opportunities or the, that he has as a race car driver to to spread whatever word he wants to spread. He's understand what's going on in the world. Like he's, he's kind of like the Renaissance man in his own sort of way, right? Because he is not afraid to have an opinion, but then doesn't assert his opinion when it's not needed. And that's, yeah. you know, I mean, look at the world. Everybody with a phone thinks they're all, oh man, I look at me, I'm a, I'm, I got a megaphone. I'm going to type out to the world. Well, now Ricky Stanhouse really does have a megaphone, but he chooses not to, not to jump into it right? Even on the golf course, he's a great golfing lefty who I will put on this podcast has passed Denny Hamlin as the best NASCAR driver on the golf course. Denny can come at me. He's going to have to agree because <laughs> uh, we've played enough golf together, but he even kind of golfs at his own way, right? Like my Ricky Stenhouse Jr. is this, we were playing together a couple of years ago and I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but I talk a lot on the golf course <laughs> and we were paired up together. I jump in the golf cart. He looks at me and he doesn't mean any ill will, but he says, listen, man, we're going to have a good day, but I need a little, about half the words you normally give. We talk a lot. I can't have that all day long. I can't have TV Steve Latart riding with me. He goes, I just, poof, my mind can't do it. But he did, he did it in such a way where I'm kind of like, man, that was some constructive criticism that I'm going to have to listen to. And what I mean by that is that's Ricky, right? Yeah. That, that's why I enjoy being around him because you always know where you stand. He's one of those guys out there that we are not close friends. I don't want to position it that we are, right? But if I was in a bad situation and truly needed help, I have zero doubt he would help, even though we're not the closest of friends. He's just, he is just a good person. And I think he does that for everyone in the garage when needed. So I think, I think that's kind of the key. And he's popular in the garage area. Now, much like the Truex first win, and much like everybody else who's popular in the garage area, go ahead, Ricky, win you a couple more, see how popular you are. <laughs> and, 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 you know, congratulations to him. He's, he's earned the, the right to perhaps not be so popular with his competitors. And I love that uh, you can appreciate that brutal honesty. That's a Steve Letarte hallmark as well. Um, I love it. One more before we move on from Daytona and, and wrap things up with Fontana, Stevie. Uh, Daytona was repaved before the 2011 Daytona 500. They had to do it. The track was falling apart. And in the 12 years since the repave, the Daytona 500 has had a list of winners that has included Trevor Bain, Austin Dillon, Michael McDowell, Austin Sendrick, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. 
I think you can argue that those are five great storylines for they're all for varying reasons, all different reasons. They're great storylines to have those guys win the biggest race of the season. But if you're a casual fan or somebody who doesn't know NASCAR, which there might be some curiosity there, how do you have guys who I'm not sure any of those guys are NASCAR Hall of Famers? Certainly not yet in some of the cases and probably not ever going to be in at least one. How would you explain to people how you end up with a list of winners like that in the biggest race of the year? Well, I think because the biggest race of the year is the snapshot of really the historic NASCAR. We're now celebrating 75 years of NASCAR, and we all know Dale Sr., Richard Petty, Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson. Okay, so that's what, 21 and 4. It's 25 of the 75 championships. Well, there's 50 more, or 49 more in this case. We haven't crowned our 75th. So start listing them. And the reason I say that is because, you know, what makes NASCAR beautiful is that there are at least 30, 35, 40 full-time competitors. It goes up and down every year, right? We don't have to get into the numbers. But they all put the effort in. They all show up each and every week. And there's a lot of reasons why the technology, the car, the opportunity, the driver, the team, the finance will challenge even the best of drivers. The, the age-old question is what matters more, the driver or the car? And I answer this question. I, I have new owners every once in a while will call me and get my advice, I guess, because I'm the TV guy. And I'll say, well, listen... If you have all this money and you had and you had a lotto ticket, I would hire a driver, a driver, and a driver, and then try to hire the best driver on top of that still again. Because the best drivers in the world are required to win races. Now, once you have him, you have to put him in a great race car. And what I mean by that is I think we discount how great the 15th place driver is on Sunday. I think we discount what the 25th place driver is on Sunday. I don't think we give credit to just how deep this field is. I love the sport because I never drove a race car yet. I get the credit for these wins because it is a team sport. Dale Jr. was driving the car or Jeff Gordon was driving the car. I was just organizing people and calling the shots, yet I share a little bit of that success. So, you know, you listed the drivers, but you didn't list the teams they drove for. You didn't list mm -hmm. the people behind them. You right. know, like, like, so if you say Trevor Bain, well, you know, he's driving for the Wood Brothers. They have nearly 100 wins. Right? You say Austin Dillon, well... If you've ever heard of Dale Earnhardt Sr., you know who Richard Childress <laughs> Racing is. You, you get my point. Yep. My point is, really, help me, JTG might be the team with the least wins. Is that fair out of the list you just gave me? I think so, yeah. They have less than front row, which is McDowell's team. And obviously, the other winners there, you're talking Wood Brothers, RCR, Penske. So for but sure. But even front row, for the casual fan, front row's in every race with two cars. JTG's right. been around for decades. So yeah. while it will seem like these names you don't know come to Victory Lane at Daytona, they are still there every week. You know, they didn't pop over from IndyCar and decide to win a race. Yeah. So, so I think that's what makes the allure of the Daytona. If the biggest teams and the best, I don't want to use the word best. Let me back this up. If the biggest teams and the most impressive resumes, one every Daytona 500, you wonder what would happen to the legacy. No one will make an argument that Dale Earnhardt Sr. isn't on the Mount Rushmore of NASCAR. It took him 20 years. Kyle Busch has never won it. If it wasn't held at Daytona, if it wasn't a drafting track, I think it would lose some of the allure. I know this mm -hmm. is crazy, but it, 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 it's, it goes back to Bill France saying, no, I'm going to build high banks a few miles off the beach. You're like, what? It goes back to the first ever one that took days to settle because of a photo finish. Like the allure of, of the biggest names, it's kind of, so I'm a big golf fan, right? Like, well, if you go back and look at the Masters, they're, they're not all Tiger Woods. Yep. You, you know, that doesn't mean no one questions, well, what's the Masters then? Yeah. So, so what I love about the Daytona 500 is that I think there are, a fluke is, a, is an inappropriate word because I can assure you everybody down there wants to win. 
So what it does though, is it allows everyone who's willing to commit the blood, sweat, and tears to NASCAR. One thing that keeps you going as, as the name of the drivers you just listed. One thing that keeps you going is to think that the great American race, you know, that list you just gave me doesn't make the flags behind me any less valuable to me, right? That 2014 Daytona 500, to this day, you mentioned whether will or will they not, will they go on the Hall of Fame? I don't know, but I will tell you this. Everyone that goes in the Hall of Fame, they tell you how many championships they won, they tell you how many Daytona 500s they've won. That is a resume builder. So, um, so, and and I love the casual NASCAR fan, and and every year we hope they tune in and see the spectacular thing in NASCAR and continue to watch. And I hope they still do after this year's 500. Appreciate that answer. Before we get out, the second race of the season, Auto Club Speedway in Fontana, California. Unfortunately, this is near and dear to my heart. This was the first race I ever covered. First race I ever attended in the Cup Series was the first race at Fontana, 1997. Unfortunately, it appears this will be the last race ever on the two-mile oval. They're they're looking to change to a short track there not next year, be 2025 at the earliest. What's your outlook? Because the season really kind of starts now, Stevie, at Fontana. I don't know if we know who's going to be good, but this no, yeah. final race here will be a big determinant of it. Yeah, th listen, we're not at Daytona anymore, Dorothy. Like this this is now, now your stuff better drive good. And <laughs> I think last year, the new car really, I'm mean, 19 winners. My head exploded. I couldn't believe it. So what kind of, you know, what kind of race are we going to get? What are we going to see? I don't know the answer. No one knows the answer. Towards the end of last year, I thought we started to see some standout teams, standout organizations. Who's done what over the offseason? What is there even to do over the offseason? We had the first year of the next-gen car. Well, now we've had the first offseason of the next-gen car. Who used the information correct? Who made the changes within their organization to be efficient? Are we looking at sprints or marathons? Have they learned how to make the car more efficient for 36 weeks? And this is the answer. Or can they be faster each and every week? I have no idea. I wish I know. I'm going to try to handicap it the best I can, but but I like Auto Club. If you go back to last year, right, it was a duel between a couple of Hendrick teams. Elliott and, and Kyle Larson kind of dueled each other out. Uh, remember Ross Chastain had perhaps one of the biggest hits we've seen. Well, it seems like last year there were many of them, but that one at California, without a doubt, took everybody's attention right away. So I think this is going to have a different feel. The teams know better with the car. They're a little more confident with the tires. The drivers understand what they're doing on a very difficult racetrack. So I'm looking forward to it because I'm, I, I like you, I'm not sure what we're going to see. I, I, and I think that's spectacular. That is so difficult to handicap. We had 19 different winners last year. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. wasn't one of them. So you look at the 37 points paying races in the next gen era, and now we're up to 20 race winners. That's kind of how I'm looking at it. How many next gen race winners are we going to get? We're at 20 out of 37, if my math is good. So that's only like 17 races we've seen a repeat. So is this going to continue? Yeah, I'm not sure if we can lock Ricky Stenhouse Jr. in the playoffs yet with the 19 winners last year, right? I mean, who knows? Listen, sure. you win and you're in is, is easy to say, but you're winning you're in if you're one of the top 16. I will say Ricky Stenhouse Jr., who didn't win a race last year, makes the belief in the storyline of multiple winners grow even more. So Yeah, no question. All right. Well, yeah, a lot to unpack there, for a lot to break down for Fontana, a lot to see what will unfold. No one knows what's going to happen, just like Daytona 500. But I do know that I'm really glad you were here to analyze all of it. So as always, Stevie, thanks for kicking off the 2023 season of the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Always enjoy. Our thanks again to Steve Letarte for joining us on the first episode of the NASCAR on NBC podcast for the 2023 NASCAR season. Thanks to motorsports manager Emily Conboy and senior associate producer Aaron Feldstein for coordinating Stevie's appearance and helping with the recording. 
You might have noticed the podcast was out a little earlier than normal this time. My goal for 2023 is to tape and produce these episodes earlier and have them in your feeds before afternoon rush hour on Mondays. We are using video conferencing software to tape these so you can still hear and see, in air quotes, the video version of the NASCAR and NBC podcast via the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. So check out the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel for more. And as always, you can find more news, columns, and analysis from myself, Dustin Long, and Mike Embry on NASCAR Talk and Motorsports Talk, both of those sites on the NBCSports.com website. Please visit NBCSports.com NASCAR or NBCSports.com motors. And if you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.